Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Royal power in the Midlands. Staffed her son's council with loyal household men, and where she could, advanced trusted allies both through offices and other means such as marriages. Thus, in April 1427, Henry's half-brother Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, was appointed as Constable of Carmarthen and Aberystwyth, Welsh offices that had recently been in the hands of York himself. Meanwhile, Jasper's elder brother, Edmund Tudor, Earl of Richmond, was a focus for the Queen's interest in South Wales, where he busied himself with a private war against two of the Duke of York's retainers, Sir William Herbert and Sir Walter Devereux. Edmund Tudor, having granted a handsome elevation through his marriage in the autumn of 1455 to Margaret Beaufort, the twelve-year-old niece of the late Duke of Somerset and daughter of the disgraced soldier John Beaufort, the Duke who had died possibly by suicide when Margaret was one year old. Margaret was the richest heiress in England, and her hand brought with it immense wealth and power. By the summer of 1456, Margaret was pregnant, but Edmund Tudor would never see his child. He died of plague on November the 1st, 1456, following a short imprisonment by York's retainers in Carmarthen Castle in Wales. Just under three months later, on January the 28th, 1457, in Pembroke Castle, the 13-year-old Margaret Beaufort was traumatically delivered of a son named Henry Tudor. Even in an age when girls became wives and mothers early in life, this was a young age at which to bear a child. Margaret was probably physically and mentally traumatized by the birth. Certainly, this was the last child she would ever bear. Queen Margaret, meanwhile, didn't only favour those close to the royal camp. York and his allies were excluded from the king's council and kept firmly away from court, but they weren't totally isolated following the failure of the Second Protectorate. The Duke's commission as Lieutenant of Ireland was renewed for ten years, and he was financially rewarded for the properties and offices he lost to men like the Tudors. In the summer of 1457, when there was a fear that the French were planning an attack on the English coastline, York and his friends were appointed to muster infantry and archers to defend the realm. York's daughter, Elizabeth, was married to John de la Pole, the fifteen-year-old Duke of Suffolk, only son of the murdered William de la Pole. Likewise, the Neville family received cautious royal patronage, the Earl of Salisbury was employed as chief steward in some northern parts of the King's Duchy of Lancaster, 
and he was included in defences against Scotland. Salisbury's son, Warwick, was allowed to continue as captain of Calais with control of the large garrison there, a critical post given the delicate situation in France. So, if there was tension as a result of Margaret's displacement of York, there was also a hope for cautious reconciliation, this perhaps emanating from the king, whose only apparent wish in government was a pious but simple-minded desire for rapprochement. This came to a head on March the 25th, 1458, in London, when the crown held a curious procession known as a love day. The deaths incurred on the royalist side at St. Albans weren't easily forgotten. Both Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, and Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, had left sons and heirs who harboured a rancorous determination to avenge their family's losses. Henry Beaufort, the third Duke of Somerset, was twenty years old in 1456, and lucky to be alive at all, having been grievously wounded fighting shoulder to shoulder with his father at St. Albans. Henry Percy the Younger, who became the third Earl of Northumberland, was thirty-six, and with his younger brother Thomas, Lord Egremont, bore a fierce grudge against the Neville family. These young men and their friends were widely known to carry a grudge and wrath against the Yorkists, a situation scarcely promising for the future stability of the kingdom. Henry, or those around him, decided that rather than allow blood feud and personal vendetta to spill into further murderous violence, the two sides should be brought quite literally hand in hand to make peace and foster friendship under the royal blessing. The court had moved from Coventry back to the southeast in the autumn of 1457, and a great council was summoned to London early in the new year. By the end of January, the city's largest lodging houses were packed with lords and their large bands of armed retainers. The Duke of York brought four hundred men and stayed in his own city residence, Baynard's Castle. Salisbury came with 500, and his son Warwick arrived from Calais with 600 followers, all dressed in red jackets embroidered with a ragged staff, Warwick's personal emblem. Their rival magnates came arrayed even more forcefully. Henry, Duke of Somerset, came to London in the company of the Duke of Exeter and 800 men, and he was followed by the Percys, Northumberland, Egremont, Sir Ralph Percy, and John, Lord Clifford, whose father Thomas had also been killed fighting on the king's side at St. Albans. These northerners brought a massive force of 1,500 men. By early March, when the king and queen came up to Westminster to open council proceedings, London resembled a war zone. The city authorities kept an overnight watch, banned the public carrying of weapons, and put men-at-arms on patrol in the streets to try to hold the peace, while thousands of royal archers could be seen posted both inside and outside the city, guarding the whole Thames corridor from Southwark down to Hounslow. The air fairly crackled with violent intent, but mercifully the great council opened in peace, and after long discussions 
a deal was brokered between the Yorkists and their young opponents. York and Warwick agreed to pay substantial sums of money in compensation to the bereaved families, as well as paying for St. Albans Abbey to sing masses for the souls of the dead, a process supposed to hasten a spirit's journey through purgatory. The Neville and the Percy families both agreed to undertake 4,000 mark bonds to keep the peace for ten years. This having been formally agreed, on March the 25th, known generally as Lady Day, the Feast of the Annunciation, the reconciled lords went out in public to show off their newfound mutual affection. They processed along the militarized streets of London in rather astonishing fashion, each aggrieved lord walking arm in arm with the person toward whom he held the sharpest hatred. At the head of the parade went the fresh-faced Somerset, linked at the elbow with old Salisbury. Behind them came Exeter, walking in harmonious and brotherly tandem with the Earl of Warwick, and at the back marched the oddest couple of them all, the regal person of Queen Margaret, accompanied by her bitterest foe, Richard, Duke of York. Between them all, holding no one's arm, came the faintly ridiculous figure of King Henry VI, master of the love day, and supposed reconciler of his fractured realm. The party walked with all pomp toward the giddying spire of St. Paul's Cathedral, which was crammed with the greatest multitude of people that day that was ever seen, and a service gave thanks to God for the peace that had descended on England. The peace was further celebrated with a series of jousts and tournaments at the Tower of London and in the Queen's Castle at Greenwich. But if the love day was meant to strike observers as two sets of lords now joined together in friendship, a perceptive watcher could have noted that the divisions between the realm's noblemen, written in blood at St. Albans, had in fact been sharpened and polarized by a reconciliation in which they were forced to relive events before being lined up and marched before the watching realm as if on opposing teams. Government, in 1458, continued to bump along in financially constrained failure. Queen Margaret took the king and prince back to Coventry, following the Love Day, and most of the lords who had filled London with armed men returned to their estates. But the city remained racked with riotous disorder, as did the southwest, Wales, and the marches, and northern East Anglia. As the country seethed, the Queen and the Yorkists continued to vie for power. In the autumn, Margaret began to dismiss adherents of York and the Nevilles from their official posts, and bolstered her command by taking control of the royal revenues and official appointments. One official position she could do nothing about, however, was that of Richard, Earl of Warwick, as Captain of Calais. Throughout the political turmoil of the late 1450s, Warwick had held on to the post, which gave him command of the town's garrison, a powerful standing force of royal soldiers. He had significant military resources, whose loyalty to him made him difficult to remove. This became a serious problem, as Warwick turned his office to ends that were increasingly embarrassing, 
and awkward for the government on the other side of the channel. The Calais garrison was perpetually broke, and payments to its men forever in arrears. To address this issue, and also to help cultivate his own buccaneering image, Warwick had begun to use Calais as a base for what amounted to piracy. Merchant ships from the Low Countries and Italy were attacked by rogue vessels launched at Calais, as was a fleet of ships carrying salt belonging to the Hanseatic League, the guild of trading cities along the coast of the North and Baltic Seas. Goods were plundered and sailors were bloodily slain. A similar fate befell a fleet of twenty-eight Spanish sails, which was ambushed by ships connected with Warwick in the summer of 1458. The seamen bickered, to use one chronicler's laconic phrase. Actually, a massive naval battle was fought, in which the sea foamed red as more than two hundred Spaniards and eighty men of Calais lost their lives, with three hundred more wounded right sore. Warwick was summoned to Westminster in early 1459 to attend a council called to discuss matters that included further rumours of a planned French attack on the south coast of England. He came only reluctantly, aware that there was a strong feeling that he should be removed as soon as possible from his captaincy. His reticence was soon justified. While he was at court, a brawl broke out between his men and several of the king's household, insomuch that they would have slain the earl. Whether or not this was a manufactured quarrel designed to do away with Warwick, it certainly seemed that way to the earl. When a further rumour reached him that he was to be imprisoned in the tower, Warwick fled London on his barge and returned to Calais, undismissed but deeply troubled that he had narrowly escaped assassination. Relations between the Yorkists and the court were rapidly deteriorating. From the late spring of 1459, both sides began to prepare once more for armed conflict. Margaret did so through her son's authority. In May, the court decamped once more to Coventry, and letters were sent around the nearby counties requesting a military levy to come to the royal side. Those who wouldn't comply were threatened with prosecution. All around the Midlands and the Northwest, men were privately recruited to the royal retinue and given little badges of allegiance in the form of Prince Edward's livery, a swan with a crown around his neck. A great council was scheduled for June. Suspecting the worst, York and the Nevilles refused to attend, as did a number of their sympathisers, including Thomas Boucher, Archbishop of Canterbury. For their non-attendance, the Yorkists were openly denounced by Queen Margaret. It seemed highly likely that the next step would be for the Crown to declare them traitors and to have them attainted, their families ruined forever by an act of Parliament that stripped them of their lands and titles and reduced them to nothing. In York's case, this would have meant stripping him of all status as a member of the extended royal family and future claimant to the crown. It was the final provocation. On September the 20th, Warwick returned from Calais 
gathering several hundred men about him as he rode via Warwick Castle for a rendezvous with York and Salisbury at York's base of Ludlow in the Welsh borders. Salisbury had already recruited an army. He had perhaps five thousand men behind him as he set out to ride south from the family seat at Midlam in Yorkshire. The chronicles of the time make it clear that Salisbury had raised his men not for show, but for the fight, dreading the malices of his enemies, and especially of the Queen and her company, the which hated him deadly. He wasn't mistaken. News of his army's movement reached Coventry, and the court dispatched James Touchette, Lord Audley, to attempt an interception and seize the rogue earl. Audley was an elderly man. At sixty-one, he hadn't seen action in the fields since his last involvement in the French wars some twenty-eight years earlier. All the same, he was a powerful lord in the West Midlands, who was able to raise large numbers of men from his lands in Cheshire, Staffordshire, and Shropshire, and deploy them along the route that the Earl of Salisbury was marching. In a matter of days, he assembled a force numbering somewhere between eight and twelve thousand men, at the heart of which was a bristling cavalry. Knights aboard powerful horses, both men and beasts, heavily protected by clanking plate armor, helmets and breastplates that glinted dangerously when they caught the light. Audley's large cavalry contingent was clearly intended to impress Salisbury, and suggest to the Yorkists that facing down the crown and its loyal servants in a military show of strength would be no idle task. On the morning of September the 23rd, Audley marched his men along the road that ran between Newcastle-under-Lyme and Market Drayton in Shropshire. Scouts soon encountered the first signs of Salisbury's army. To block Salisbury's path, Audley drew his men up in battle formation at Bloor Heath, a large open patch of sloped ground bounded by a light wood and a small stream, now known as Hemp Mill Brook. It was behind this stream that Audley's forces stood, their front perhaps a mile long, and partially defended by a thick band of hedgerow. Salisbury's men ranged opposite them on the slope, their front only around two-thirds as long, but their lines well defended. Behind them was a deep trench, and in the front line Salisbury's archers stood protected by deadly sharpened stakes hammered into the ground, a classic device for thwarting and slaughtering onrushing horsemen, who would impale their animals on the fierce spikes if they decided to charge rather than dismount and fight on foot. On the flanks, Salisbury and his men were sheltered by the wood and the formation of wagons that had been chained together to form a barricade. While his defences were tight, the Earl nonetheless realised that the odds were against him. Not only was he outnumbered by perhaps two to one, but the Queen was waiting less than ten miles away in Eccleshall, with a second army, and the third army under the Stanley brothers, Thomas, Lord Stanley, and Sir William Stanley, hung back slightly closer, supposedly awaiting royal commands to intervene on Audley's side. With both sides in strong defensive formations, Salisbury took the initiative with a feint, 
Around midday, his men began to recouple the horses to their wagons, as if they were preparing to fall back from the heath. Audley took the bait and sent his cavalry out to give chase. Unfortunately, in order to do so, they had to cross the brook in front of them. Wading through the waters slowed their progress and made them vulnerable to attack by Salisbury's archers. A storm of arrows fell from the sky, raining death upon the advancing horses and their riders. Men were catapulted from their dying mounts, only to be chopped down by the infantry. Those who survived were forced to flee back out of the archers' range to the lines on the other side of the brook. Audley sent a second mounted charge across the water, but they too were driven back in a vicious hail of wood and steel sent from Salisbury's bowmen. At this point, the Stanley's army, waiting close at hand, might have been expected to join the fray, but the Stanley's, as arch-pragmatists, were always wary of committing their men to a battle whose outcome seemed anything less than completely certain. Thomas, Lord Stanley, simply kept his troops back, while Sir William Stanley actually sent reinforcements to Salisbury's side. In the end, Audley had no choice but to change tactics. He abandoned the cavalry charge and led about 4,000 of his men, including large numbers of dismounted knights, in an advance on foot. A furious hand-to-hand -hand battle began, steel ripping into flesh and men hurling themselves at one another at close quarters. Although Audley was an aging commander and his tactics had been seriously naive, he didn't lack personal valour. He fought in the thick of the battle. But in the melee, he was sought out by one Sir Roger Kiniston of Hordley, a retainer of the Duke of York, who was among Salisbury's knights. In the open field where the ground sloped gently downward, Audley eventually lost his valiant stand. He was hacked down and killed, and his assistant commander, John Sutton, Lord Dudley, was taken prisoner. The Loyalists had lost their leader and soon gave up the fight. The battle lasted in total around four hours, and by the end of it, perhaps two thousand men lay dead in the field, their blood seeping into the warm autumn soil. Audley was buried at Darley Abbey in Derbyshire, and a stone cross which still stands was erected at Bloor Heath, where he fell. In later years, local people would refer to the battlefield as Dead Man's Den. After Bloor Heath, Salisbury took the majority of his men onward to the south to meet with his son Warwick and York. Victory had cost him considerable casualties, and he weakened his forces further by allowing his two youngest sons, Sir Thomas and Sir John Neville, to take a significant number of soldiers back north. On their way, the Neville boys were both captured and imprisoned in Chester Castle. Meanwhile, Salisbury's remaining forces were pursued into the marches by the main royal army, which now included around twenty of the peers of the realm. They met up with York and Warwick, but by now their numbers were disappointingly thin, and they were outnumbered by around three to one. In desperation, the three Yorkist lords came together at Worcester Cathedral, 
and in great solemnity swore oaths to protect one another. Then they retreated to York's nearby castle of Ludlow, where on October the 10th they wrote jointly to Henry VI, protesting their humble obeisance and reverence, before condemning the realm's misgovernment, the failure of the law, and the violence rampant throughout the kingdom. They also complained of the impatience and violence of such persons as intend of extreme malice to proceed under the shadow of your high might and presence to our destruction. The letters may have reached the king and his counsellors, but after Blore Heath they were hardly in the mood to listen sympathetically. Just as at St. Albans, a Yorkist army had been raised against the peace of the realm, and blood, some of it noble blood, had been spilled. Messages returned across the Midlands from the court. The rebellious lords were to lay down their arms and beg for the royal pardon within six days. They refused, and another armed confrontation became inevitable. Audley and his men may have been dead and defeated, but another large royal army was closing in. By the second week of October, the Yorkists were camped in fields south of Ludlow. Above them, on high ground, brooded Ludlow Castle, with huge turrets and towers, vast arched doorways and narrow windows, and sheets of stoutly defended walls over which fluttered the Duke of York's arms. In front of Ludlow, the River Team swirled cold and fast, the only route across it into the town passing over the thick, recently built stone thoroughfare known as Ludford Bridge. On the south bank of the team, below Ludford Bridge, the rebel lord's army was drawn up. Yorkist morale was already evaporating, when on October the 12th the royal army finally appeared before them. It included an impressive group of English lords, commanded by Henry, Duke of Somerset, Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, and Henry, Earl of Northumberland, and including the Duke of Exeter and Earls of Arundel, Devon, Shrewsbury, and Wiltshire. The royal standard flew above them, and although in a rather desperate propaganda move the Yorkists had spread rumours that Henry VI was dead, it was obvious he wasn't. In fact, he and Queen Margaret were with the army, probably in the rear. It seemed clearer than ever that for all their justified grievances and maltreatment of the Queen's hands, the Yorkists represented partisanship and faction, while the assembled lords in front of them stood for the closest thing that existed to the united political opinion of the realm. It may also have become commonly known that a summons had been sent out for a parliament in November at which it was certain that York and his allies would be destroyed by acts of attainder. Evening was drawing in when the Yorkists began to fire their cannons toward the royal lines. These were the preliminary exchanges of a battle that was intended to be fought the following day, October the 13th, St. Edward's Day, the Prince of Wales' birthday, and the most auspicious day of the whole year for English kingship. To York and the Nevilles, it seemed that there was only one way that the day would be marked. With their armies scattered, their lives imperiled, and their families put on the road to utter ruin. York's own family was in close quarter at Ludlow. His seventeen-year-old son, Edward, Earl of March, was at his side. 
so too his second son, the sixteen-year-old Edmund, Earl of Rutland. Behind him in the castle was Duchess Cecily and her two younger boys, George, nine, and Richard, who had just celebrated his seventh birthday. Would the king, spurred by his vengeful wife, spare them, if it came to that? Defeatism was seeping into the Yorkist ranks. At some point during the evening, while the irregular boom of cannons echoed over the black water of the River Team, one of Warwick's captains, a Calais soldier called Andrew Trollope, led his hardened troops out of the Yorkist camp and over the royal side to submit to the king, taking with him both valuable fighting men and invaluable military intelligence. Now faced with what amounted to certain obliteration, in the dead of night York and his leading allies snuck out of the camp back to Ludlow Castle, leaving their army standing oblivious in their wake as they rode hard away from the battlefield. It was a highly dishonourable thing to do, but the only means by which they could save themselves. From Shropshire they scattered into diverse parties beyond the sea for the more surety of their persons. York and his son Rutland made for the Welsh coast, breaking bridges as they went before taking boats across the sea to Ireland. The Nevilles, meanwhile, fled in great peril to the West Country, taking with them the young Edward, Earl of March. From Devon, they took ship to Guernsey, from where they returned to Warwick's Haven in Calais. They had saved their skins, but at great cost to their reputations and honour. Their army, which rose from the anticipated battle, instead found themselves surrendering and petitioning for royal forgiveness. Queen Margaret, standing behind the royal lines, no doubt took great satisfaction in this moment. Four years on from the debacle of St. Albans, her enemies had finally scurried from the royal standard like frightened mice. Every lord in England at the time durst not disobey the queen, wrote one chronicler. All that remained was to return to Coventry and prepare for the November Parliament, where their legal destruction and the dissolution of their families could be completed. Up in Ludlow Castle, another great lady of the realm viewed events unfolding with growing alarm. Cecily Neville, Duchess of York, has seen her husband and second son run in one direction, while her brother, nephew and eldest son, Salisbury, Warwick and March, hastened in another. On October the 13th, she watched from the castle as royal troops broke into the town and began its sack. It was a scene that would be repeated all across the kingdom in the coming months, as Yorkist properties were despoiled and their tenants harassed. Cecily had seen enough of the violent politics of Normandy, Ireland and England during her marriage to know that she was in terrible danger. And most immediately, she had to consider the safety of the two males of her kin, who hadn't run from her, her young boys George and Richard. As the sack of Ludlow concluded, she walked out of the castle gates, taking the children with her. A day of terror and confusion had seen some men staggering drunkenly about the streets, having robbed the taverns of their pipes and hogsheads of wine, while others stole bedding, clothes and other stuff, and defiled many women. 
The grand wife of the vanquished duke walked through the streets of the ransacked town, her sons by her side. They walked as far as the overturned marketplace in the shadow of the castle walls, and then came to a halt, the remnants of a great family throwing themselves on the mercy of the crown. While Ludlow was robbed to the bare walls, Cecily, George, and Richard simply stood and waited for whatever fate was to meet them. Chapter 11 Suddenly Fell Down the Crown Nearly two thousand men poured onto the ships that set sail from Calais on a summer's day in late June 1460. They were headed for the coast of Kent to Sandwich, the sheltered port a few miles north of Dover, whose long, sandy stretch of coastline made landing a large force of men and munitions a straightforward task. The journey across the Channel was rapid, and the soldiers who piled aboard the invading vessels were something of a crack force, a strong and a mighty navy, as one chronicler put it. Their leader and commander was the Earl of Warwick. For nearly eleven months since the flight from Ludford Bridge, Warwick had turned Calais into a bristling citadel for English dissidents and opponents of Queen Margaret. There were plenty to be found. As had been expected in the dying months of 1459, the Queen had moved against her enemies with indignation and spite. An act of attainder had been passed at a Parliament held in St. Mary's Priory, Coventry, before Christmas, a gathering that would later be nicknamed the Parliament of Devils, which attempted the utter legal and financial ruin of York and his sons, and a whole raft of their friends, servants, associates and allies. The attainder had been introduced with an absurdly propagandizing preamble, in which the Duke of York was painted as a scheming, ungrateful monster, whose false and traitorous imaginations, conspiracies, feats, and diligent labors borne up with colorable lies, amounted to the worst deeds that ever did any subject to his sovereign lord. While Henry VI was cast not only as a generous sovereign whose trust had been betrayed and life endangered at St. Albans, but as a vigorous soldier who valiantly faced down his enemies on the battlefield and whose addresses to his subjects could be described as so witty, so knightly, so manly. The penalty of attainder amounted to legal death. It stripped its victims of all their estates, honours and dignities, which they or any of them hath within this your realm of England, and within Wales and Ireland, including all honours, castles, lordships, manors, lands, tenements, rents, reversions, annuities, offices, fees, advowsons, fee farms, inheritances, and other possessions. It was aimed not only at York and his sons Edward, Earl of March, and Edmund, Earl of Rutland, but also Salisbury and Warwick, and their noble supporter John, Lord Clinton. A whole raft of other Yorkist servants, retainers, and associates were also swept up, including Sir Walter Devereux, and Sir William Oldhall, and Salisbury's wife, Countess Alice. John de la Pole, who had inherited the title of Duke of Suffolk from his father, was said to have been demoted to the rank of Earl, 
for the crime of being married to York's daughter, Elizabeth. Although a few culpable figures escaped ruin, Thomas, Lord Stanley, was forgiven his refusal to engage at Bloor Heath. By and large, the Queen embarked on a severe and vengeful campaign against all York's affiliates. Their lands and titles were swept into royal possession, their officials dismissed and replaced, and the administration of the confiscated estates given over to men of long-standing obedience to the crown and court. High among the beneficiaries were men of the king's immediate family. Owen Tudor was given a pension of a hundred pounds a year to be paid for the rest of his life out of manors seized from Lord Clinton. Jasper Tudor, who has spent the last four years representing the king's authority in South Wales, was given the rights of constable, steward, and chief forester to York's rich and strategically crucial lordship of Denby, along with rights of military recruitment over virtually the whole of Wales, to help him seize Denby Castle from his disgruntled Yorkist keepers. Yet, for all their determination to destroy the Yorkists by law, the Queen and her government found themselves unable to reach their enemies in person. York and his second son, Edmund, were safe in Ireland, and although James, Earl of Wiltshire, a spineless creature of the Queen who ranked among the men most hated by the Yorkists, was appointed Lieutenant of Ireland, he couldn't physically take up his role thanks to the support that York enjoyed across the sea. The situation was more or less mirrored in Calais, where Warwick now enjoyed preeminence and protection from all the harm that so many in England would have dearly loved to do to him. Now thirty-one, Warwick hadn't come to Calais to live in fearful exile. He was a veteran soldier, a highly regarded and popular leader, and a shrewd politician who used his aristocratic pedigree on the continent to recruit allies ranging from the Duke of Burgundy to envoys of the papal court. With his father, Salisbury, and his nephew, York's son Edward, Earl of March, Warwick has spent the year regrouping and rearming. Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, had been sent by Queen Margaret to eject the rebels and take up the captaincy of Calais for himself. But Somerset could get no farther than the neighbouring town of Guine, from where his repeated assaults were easily repulsed. Meanwhile, piratical Yorkist raiding parties arrived like Vikings on the beaches of Kent, attacking towns and kidnapping or murdering royal captains. On two occasions, Warwick's men stole and scuppered ships on the Kentish coast that the Crown was assembling there specifically to use against him. In one particularly daring raid, the loyalist Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers, and his son, Anthony Woodville, were sent to Sandwich with instructions to launch an attack on Calais, only to be abducted by Warwick's men and taken back to the garrison as prisoners. Alongside this daring guerrilla campaign, Warwick bravely kept up communications with York and Rutland in Ireland. Indeed, in March 1460, the Earl managed to sail along the entire coast of southern England and Wales, and hold a conference with York in Waterford on the south coast of Ireland, where the two rebel camps discussed their return to England. 
Warwick, March and Salisbury landed at Sandwich on June the 26th and found the town readied for their arrival. An advance party under Salisbury's brother Lord Falkenberg had stormed the royal defences the previous day, stealing the town's weapons cache and summarily beheading the unlucky royal captain, Osbert Mundford, who happened to be in command. The Yorkists had sent ahead of them their now customary manifesto, protesting absolute loyalty to the king and rehearsing their condemnation of the crown's poverty, the absence of justice, and the failure of the king's household to live upon his own livelihood, that is, to be funded by the king's private revenue rather than relying on taxation. They added an accusation that ever since Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, had been murdered at Bury in 1447, it had been conspired to have destroyed and murdered the said Duke of York, along with his issue of the royal blood. Rather than directly attacking the king or queen, scathing criticism was reserved for Wiltshire, Shrewsbury and Beaumont, the lords who had replaced the old Duke of Somerset as the object of the Yorkist scorn. The manifesto broke little new ground, either in tone or in substance. The Yorkists rightly recognised that the Crown's popular support was strongest in the Midlands, Northwest, and Wales. The rumble of dissatisfaction that had led Kent and the Southeast into open rebellion during Jack Cade's heyday had never wholly faded and could easily be stirred up with a rabble-rousing publication espousing the cause of York. By July the 2nd, Warwick and his men were in London, with thousands of supporters streaming to their sides from across southern England. To the relief of the mayor and aldermen of London, who had seen the city turned upside down by rampaging rebel armies enough times over the preceding decade, the Yorkists stayed in the capital for only around forty-eight hours, before drawing up into two large divisions, the first, led by Falkenberg, and the second, headed by Edward and Warwick. They tramped north at pace to confront the king. Falkenberg took with him a distinguished, if extremely pompous and slightly absurd, ecclesiastic, Francesco Copini, the Bishop of Terni. Copini had been appointed as papal legate to Henry VI, with a mandate to recruit England to a crusade against the Turks. But after meeting Warwick in Calais, he had become a very enthusiastic Yorkist partisan and propagandist. Shortly before leaving London for the march north, Corpini published at St. Paul's a colourful open letter to Henry VI, emphasising the supposed obedience and loyalty of the Yorkists and damning their enemies as clerks and ministers of the devil. He issued the starkest warnings to the king and government, forecasting the danger and ruin of your state, if they failed to come to terms with Warwick and his allies. Those that close their ears like deaf vipers, woe to them and also to your majesty, wrote Corpini. The danger is imminent and doesn't brook delay. He was absolutely right. By July the 7th, the Yorkists' two columns were approaching the Midlands. The speed at which they had moved took the court at Coventry entirely by surprise. Henry and Queen Margaret had no choice but to go out and meet the rebels. They rode south, rattled and under strength, 
There was no time for Henry, Earl of Northumberland, or John, Lord Clifford, to reach the royal army with their men, and while the king and queen were attended by great lords like Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, the Earl of Shrewsbury, Viscount Beaumont, and a healthy smattering of purses, the Yorkists had attracted far more noble support than at any previous foray into the field. Their supporters included John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, who had for many years been inclined to York's cause without ever before fully committing himself to military action. Warwick could count among his men John Lord Audley, the son and heir of the leader who was slain at Blore Heath by Salisbury. The Yorkists were also accompanied by a large group of the most important churchmen in the realm, Thomas Boucher, Archbishop of Canterbury, the legate Corpini, and the bishops of London, Exeter, Lincoln, Salisbury, Ely, and Rochester. The two sides met in the meadows outside Northampton on July the 10th, on the south bank of the River Neen. It was a miserably wet day, with rain pounding from the sky and churning up the turf as it was trampled over by thousands of boots and hooves. Horrible weather for fighting, not least since the water ruined the royal guns. Nevertheless, the Duke of Buckingham, who was given command of the royal forces as the king and queen hung back, refused to negotiate. He lined his men up between a slight bend in the river and the nearby Delapray Abbey and prepared to give battle. The bishops retreated to a safe distance to watch. What they witnessed wasn't in overall numbers an especially bloody battle, but within half an hour of the first exchanges the royal forces were dealt a massive and devastating blow. Their men were divided into three groupings, Buckingham leading the left flank, Shrewsbury and Beaumont in the centre, and Lord Grey of Rhythm on the right. Early in the battle, Grey decided to defect, bringing his men over to the Yorkist side, where Falkenberg, Warwick and March held command. The result was total confusion among the King's army. Battered by the rain, they abandoned their discipline and soldiers began to desert, running for Northampton, with several drowning in the Neen under the weight of their provisions and armour. As panic and chaos descended, Warwick's men followed the ruthless tactics that had served them well six years before at St. Albans. Warwick himself had called aloud across the fields that no man should lay hand upon the king nor on the common people, but only on the lords, knights, and squires. Thus, the rank and file were spared, and hit squads moved around the battlefield, cutting down the captains. By the end, only around three hundred men lay slain on the field, out of more than ten thousand who had arrayed for the fight. But among the dead were Buckingham, Beaumont, Shrewsbury, and Thomas Percy, Lord Egremont, all hunted down and killed where they stood. The whole operation took less than half an hour. While the butchering of the lords was taking place, the king was captured, as helpless in the field as he had been in 1455. He was taken first to Delapray Abbey, then on to London, no longer a puppet of his wife, but a prisoner of the Earl of Warwick and his allies. Cecily Neville, Duchess of York, had been scooped up at Ludlow following the Battle of Ludford Bridge and taken, with her sons George and Richard, 
to a place of relatively genteel confinement. They were sent to stay with Cecily's sister Anne, the wife of Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham. It was a favour granted when strictly one wasn't due. Cecily had been rewarded an income of 1,000 marks a year to compensate for the loss of her husband's income and to offer relief to her and her infants who hadn't offended against the king. The confinement was perhaps not entirely warm. One writer heard that Anne kept her younger sister full straight with many a great rebuke. But under the circumstances she was treated well. Cecily was still with Anne in the summer of 1460 when the awful news arrived of Buckingham's death by the hand of Warwick, who was, of course, both women's nephew. In some senses, this sort of thing was inevitable. For the Nevilles were a huge and broadly married dynasty, and their bloodline woven across the divide in English politics. But it still must have felt to the two sisters, who were only divided by a year in age, that their family was tearing both itself and England apart. After the Battle of Northampton, Cecily and her sons were released from their house arrest. With the king now in Warwick's keep, it had become safe for Richard, Duke of York, to return once again from Ireland, a journey that had been too perilous earlier in the summer due to royal control of Wales, the marches in the northwest. York landed at Redbank near Chester on or around September the 8th. But as he came, it was clear that something was different about him. In his absence, his allies had fought successfully for their party to regain control of the king. They could have expected the duke, their talisman and figurehead, to try his hand once more at governing England as chief counsellor or protector. Instead, they found him angling for another position entirely. Cecily was reunited with her husband at Abingdon in early October. It was a grand reunion. York had instructed his wife to meet him enthroned upon a chair covered with blue velvet, drawn by four pairs of coursers. He himself arrived dressed in a livery of white and blue, neatly embroidered with fetterlocks, the iron D-shaped manacles used to tether horses by the leg. The symbol had first been associated with John of Gaunt, the direct ancestor of Henry VI, but had also been used by Edward of Norwich, Richard's uncle and predecessor as Duke of York, who had died at Agincourt alongside Henry V. There was no mistaking the Plantagenet pedigree that the livery implied. Together the Duke and Duchess went on to London, with trumpets and clarions blown before them all the way, Banners displaying the arms of England caught the wind high above the procession, and to complete his majestic appearance, York commanded his sword to be borne upright before him. York hadn't returned from Ireland for a second time to serve as a counsellor. He'd come back to England as a king. His peers were shocked. The central tenet of Yorkist opposition indeed of all opposition to Henry VI's rule, had always been the assertion that those who surrounded the king were enemies and traitors. Indeed, everything that had been done in England since the death of Henry V had been to preserve the power and authority of the king and crown, whether the king was a baby, an easily swayed adolescent, a naive young man, 
a dribbling lunatic or a defeated, world-weary shell of a thing prematurely ready for the grave. This was the realm's first political principle. To depose or attempt to replace a king who was not actively tyrannical, as Edward II and Richard II had been, wasn't just wrong, it was nearly unthinkable. And for all his failings, Henry VI was the opposite of a tyrant. After more than fifteen years of opposition, York had crossed the line. It was an action not openly approved by his allies, although it is possible that Warwick suspected York's intentions, and regarded with amazement by his enemies. The most likely explanation for it lay in the person of his one remaining enemy, the Queen. Edmund, Duke of Somerset, Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, the old Earl of Northumberland, the young Earl of Shrewsbury, and Lord Beaumont were all dead. James, Earl of Wiltshire, Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, and others survived, but they weren't the principal threat. This lay manifestly with Queen Margaret, and with her conduit to practical power in the seven-year-old Edward, Prince of Wales. A queen and a little boy couldn't very well be killed, yet every day that she lived increased Margaret's hatred for York. So long as her son was heir to the crown, she, and subsequently he, would stand opposed to York's survival and ambition. The only solution was for York to position himself either as king or, as his cousin Henry V had done in France under the terms of the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, as the king's heir. Both options would disinherit Prince Edward and thereby neuter the queen. In terms of raw power politics, the decision made sense. Practically, though, it was a catastrophic misjudgment. York had renounced his duty of obedience to Henry VI sometime before he met Cecily in Abingdon. The sword carried before him was the most obvious sign of this, but he had also stopped using Henry's regnal year to date his documents. He seems to have been confident that, having been lauded for years by the commons of England, albeit not all of the lords, as a man with the credentials to occupy the throne, he would sweep into his new position to the sound of cheers and celebration. In this, he was sorely disappointed. At ten o'clock in the morning, on Friday, October the 10th, York arrived at the Palace of Westminster, where Parliament was sitting with several hundred men on horseback. He entered the palace with his sword still borne before him, and stormed through the Great Hall. High in the wooden arches of the hammer-beam ceiling, Henry Yeavely's famous fifteen statues of historical English kings stared impassively down upon the latest man to lay violent claim to the crown they had all worn. York marched on, bursting into the painted chamber to find the parliamentary lords assembled before an empty throne. Standing before his peers as his servants held the cloth of state over his head, York gave them knowledge that he purposed not to lay down his sword, but to challenge his right. He was staking his claim to the crown on the basis that his right in blood, descending twice from Edward III via the Mortimer and York lines, was superior to that of the King or Prince of Wales, and that no man should have denied the crown from his head. 
There was a stunned silence. He then retired to take up lodgings in the Queen's chambers. The Queen mercifully had fled to Wales and wasn't present to protest. If there had been any great gusto for York's plan before he announced it in Parliament, then enthusiasm was extremely muted thereafter. Nobles and commons alike were immediately struck by the sheer awful reality of deposing a king. York was asked to submit his claim to the crown, which he did on October the 16th via the Chancellor, his nephew, George Neville, Bishop of Exeter. Neville presented to the Parliament a large genealogical roll detailing York's descent from Henry III via Edward III, and describing how the Mortimer and York lines had intertwined to produce him, Richard Plantagenet, commonly called Duke of York. This, went York's argument, gave him dynastic precedence over Henry VI, who was descended from his great-grandfather, Edward III's third son, John of Gaunt. Gaunt's son, Henry IV, had therefore acted unrightwisely, unlawfully, in seizing the crown in 1399, and the right, title, dignity, royal, and estate of the crowns of the realms of England and of France, and of the lordship and land of Ireland, of right, law, and custom appertaineth and belongeth to Richard, Duke of York. It fell to Parliament to debate the matter. But what was it that they were really debating? The dynastic case was there to be made, for if one accepted that the right to the crown could run through the female line, as York did when he trumpeted his Mortimer ancestry, then the Duke had the better claim in blood. And yet it was clear that the claim in blood was only a mode of addressing a deeper argument. Had York really acted out of the conviction that his cause was purely one of dynastic right and wrong, he should surely have staked his claim at some previous point in the two decades. He hadn't. The English dynastic argument in 1460 was as much a veil for a practical argument about effective kingship as English claims to the crown of France had been during the 1420s. It wasn't the real reason that York claimed the throne— his real purpose encompassed a broad sense that Henry VI's incompetence, allied with Queen Margaret's tyrannical instincts, could be tolerated no longer, bound up with a heavy-handed sense of self-importance. All the Duke's previous efforts to amend and correct royal government had failed. Dynasty was the last resort. Now it was up to Parliament to say whether they would accept this. Following two weeks of debate, a compromise was decided. Given the hideous breach that was suggested by the prospect of a full deposition, a trois-like settlement was thrashed out. First, the acts of the 1459 Parliament of Devils were rescinded. Then, on the matter of the succession, it was agreed that the king would enjoy the crown for the rest of his natural life, but the Duke would be entitled, called, and reputed from henceforth very and rightful heir to the crowns, royal estate, dignity, and lordship. Young Prince Edward was thus abruptly replaced in the royal line, first by York, and then by his sons, March and Rutland. 
The agreement was publicized on October the 31st, 1460, and bolstered by the astonishingly efficient Yorkist propaganda machine, which had, in the summer, been energetically spreading rumors, quite false, that Prince Edward was illegitimate, and thus in every way not the king's son. The cosmos, it seemed, now pointed toward York. Indeed, while the commons were debating in the refectory of Westminster Abbey, treating upon the title of the said Duke of York, suddenly fell down the crown which hung in the midst of the said house, which was taken for a profage or token that the reign of King Henry was ended. But it wouldn't be that simple, for even if the supine king were prepared to yield his title to a belligerent cousin, there remained one person who would never accept the derogation of their family's royal status. Queen Margaret was still at large. As Christmas approached in 1460, the Queen and her supporters found... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.